The materials disclosed on this podcast are deemed to be sales desk literature and subject to our client communication policy and code of conduct, as well as IROC rules. We have Fed that paid tribute to some of the good, but still sent a very dovish message. Dovish message. See, I just pulled the rose. <laughs> Hey, Royce. How are you? Good, my friend. How are you? I'm okay, buddy. Let's jump into this because there's a lot to digest, a lot to talk about. Obviously, the starting point is the Fed from two days ago. Let's kick it off with the survey of economic projections. You know, Relative to, I think, what the market was expecting, relative to what was delivered, it was a bit of a disconnect. Why don't you walk us through three things? Number one is the economic forecasts, growth and inflation, in particular within the context of this is the first dot plot from an AIT perspective. Number two was the dots themselves. And then number three was the characterization of the economy. So you know, what are your big thoughts here? So starting with the growth and inflation forecast, look, they upgraded their growth forecast pretty significantly over the next two years. They're looking for growth of 6.5% in 2021. That's Q4 over Q4. And then 3.3% in 2022. That's even hotter than what we had penciled in. Now, if you look at what that translates into for inflation, it's actually not that much. Chairman Powell stressed during the press conference that if you look back to 2018 and 2019, the unemployment rate was below 4% and you still weren't generating above target core PCE inflation. Now, could this time be different? Actually, maybe yes. We're seeing signs that labor unionization rates might be rising, uh, minimum wage hikes could be coming down the pike. And you have sort of this pause in globalization, maybe not a deglobalization trend anymore, but at least a pause in globalization, which is, again, inflationary. So for those three reasons, the Fed is potentially underestimating what might show up in inflation. Now, curiously, in 2023, they only show a growth rate of 2.2%. Now, you might say, well, that's roughly around potential growth. But they're showing a growth rate around potential, while at the same time, they're not showing any rate hikes. So, you know, the, the economy is slowing down, but for a reason other than their own policy. Where the disconnect sort of starts to show up is even though, you know, we could argue that their inflation forecasts are a little bit light, they're still averaging above 2% for the next three years. And that's where I think it signals that their reaction function has changed more than we or the market might have been anticipating. So let's talk about that for a second, because if we were to go back, say, 2014 to 2018, we're in a low inflation trend-like growth environment. Interest rate hikes were very slow at the start. There was one in 2015, one in 2016. And then all of a sudden, you went to this synchronized boom, and central bankers did what they never do, is they do exactly what they said, and they hiked rates, and then ultimately tripped the economy up. We know that from an average inflation targeting perspective, that it's no longer sufficient to expect inflation to exceed or breach target, nor is it sufficient to assume that the output gap is simply closed. They have to see evidence of it. But when we look at the survey of economic projections, and then we overlay it on the dots, 
the inconsistency seems to be that the run rate or the allowance of moving the economy to a very high pressure scenario seems to be quite different than it was in the past. Is that how you would see the reaction function changing? You hit the nail on the head. At this point, they don't want to make any moves based on just forecasts. And one thing maybe you missed was that they certainly don't want to make any moves based on forecasts of the Phillips curve, which you can see Powell and Powell is consi- Powell is consistently uh let me start that again. Sorry. Why? <laughs> <laughs> you can actually leave that in. I don't know why I said Powell and Powell. <laughs> Which Powell is consistently de-emphasizing. Um, but what I will say is that they don't want to make any changes based on forecast. And I th- think that sort of also plays into, how, how should I word this? In, in some way, the Fed didn't want to have to show a rate hike in 2023, right? They, they want to um, make sure people understand the message that there has been a regime change and there is going to be above target inflation to make up for the lack of inflation over the last uh, cycle or the last few years or whatever they decided to be. And this drives that point home even harder. When I look out at the forecast, though, do I think if, let's say, inflation starts to heat up, it starts to show up in some of the more underlying measures of inflation, could they pull forward those forecasts? Absolutely. Of course they could. But, you know, the thing that I struggle with here, Royce, when I'm looking at these forecasts, and listen, I get conservatism and I understand to a certain degree why they did what they did. What is bothering me is that the reaction that we're seeing in bond markets, it's such that, you know, you went through this period very late last year where everyone was listening to the Fed saying, listen, we're not doing anything for a very long time, but we're going to generate a very high pressure outcome. Okay, fine. So you had break-evens and market-based inflation compensation really lead the sell-off because people thought, well, they're not tightening rates, therefore they're going to allow inflation to overshoot. Then you kind of got into the early part of this year. Growth numbers started to look very good. Markets brought the Fed forward, and that allowed this transition away from break-evens leading the sell-off to real interest rates, which just meant that there was more of a growth narrative in the bond market. But I get concerned because as of yesterday, it's almost like we've reshifted back to that you know, August 2020 to Jan 2021 environment, where now we're generating this inflationary discussion that's really steepening the curve. But doesn't that tighten financial conditions prematurely, which is at opposite ends of stoking the recovery, which is what they're trying to do by not raising rates? It does. But as he pointed out yesterday, he's not really concerned about the tightening thus far in financial conditions. And I don't think he'd be overly concerned about the tightening at the long end that we've seen over the past couple of days. His job is to signal that they are going to get those inflation expectations higher. And he's actually done just that. Now, the question for you is, um, how much longer can the market fight what the Fed is communicating? So you know the old adage, don't fight the Fed. But I think the market's about to dig its heels in for a pretty big fight here. And, you know, I think it's just this reflection that because under the new framework that they really can change their mind on a dime once they have this understanding what the data is evolving into. It's evidence. They're really hesitant about making any changes to the stance of monetary policy based on forecasts. And that showed up in both the summary of economic projections, but in his press conference, he stressed that. So that's the point. And first of all, I'd say he did a really good job in the press conference, probably the best job I've seen him do since he took over the chairmanship. 
but what I think is going to have to happen in the bond market is that this is not a situation where it's a game of attrition and the Fed ultimately wrestles the market into submission because things can change at such a moment's notice that the Fed is now in a real-time reactionary function that the market cannot get too acquiesce with this idea that the Fed narrative is the overarching narrative. So I expect that this game of tug and war is going to persist for a little bit. And, you know, when I think about the path of policy, and let's talk about this for a second. As of right now, the market has the Fed finishing their rate hike cycle just under 2% by 2025. The timing of rate hikes have been pushed out a little bit. So we're talking about early 2023. The two questions I have for you are, number one is, can we realistically realistically expect a rate hiking cycle to last until 2025? And can we realistically expect that the Fed's not going to do anything for the next 16 months? <laughs> no, I want to know. Answer me. Uh, could it be within the bands? Uh, you know, <laughs> like I, I, it, it could, it could happen. Yeah. But I can tell from your voice, you're not overly convinced. So no, because I don't think this rate hiking cycle is going to be as long as the last one. And I'll say this because last time they were hiking rates ahead of when the evidence was showing up. So Yellen had to pause and wait for better data to roll in before hiking again, and then wait again to see how the economy reacted. This time, you're going to be actually playing a little bit of catch up. They don't want to say that, but they're going to be playing a little bit of catch up. Yes. And I would expect that the rate hike cycle should be shorter. Now, when can they move? Can they actually stay on hold for the next 16 months? That's well within, I would say, forecasts based on reality and the range of forecasts. But I think it's likely that they probably need to move a little bit earlier. This discussion is is very hypothetical. I think a discussion that hits a little bit closer to home and actually we can have a little bit more of a deep discussion with is the relative timing of the Bank of Canada versus the Fed. So what's priced in for the Bank of Canada and what's priced in for the Fed? right now and we can go from there. So, you know, a time of discussion here in the studio, you know, the Bank of Canada's price started hiking rates kind of in June 2022. If you kind of build out the forecast to the end of 2025, which is where it starts to slow down. So it's kind of like two hikes in 22, three hikes in 23, two hikes in 24, one hike in 25, leaves you with a 225 overnight rate, which remember, that's 50 basis points above where we reached the peak in the last cycle. Right. And the Fed is, you know, it starts later, but then it goes a bit faster. So when I think about that, I was really hoping when the survey of economic projections was released that it would reduce some of the optical pressure coming into Canada on the timing and pace of our own hikes. And clearly that didn't happen. And if anything, it exaggerated a little bit. So for you, the question I have is, we're now in a situation where not only are we priced to go meaningfully before the Fed, but meaningfully faster. I didn't have a hard time going before the Fed. I have a bit of a hard time seeing the bank hiking twice before the Fed's even started its own cycle. But I think it's even like five times by the end of 2023 and the and the Fed is only priced for what, two? We have, I think you have 75 basis points priced to the end of 2023. You have very large disconnects opening up is the point. And you're starting from a point where the Canadian dollar is, you know, in our view, strong. So that is not exactly conducive to the Bank of Canada needing to tighten financial conditions materially faster than they would in an environment where the Canadian dollar was, let's say, trading significantly weaker against the US dollar. I think the starting points matter here. And it seems unlikely that you're going to get in that environment five hikes from the Bank of Canada and only two and a half 
from the Fed. But that's why I keep getting back to this idea that when you're operating in a just-in-time policy environment, you can't call shenanigans on the profile for the Fed just yet because it can get pulled forward in a week or two weeks. This whole thing right. could be moved. Right, right, right. So that's a very hard situation for investors. And I think for, in terms of guidance, you know, what we can do best is just try and give our advice. But when we think back to some of the risks for Canada in the April NPR that's coming up, obviously we have the ECB, which was talking a bit more dovishly. We have the Bank of Japan, which is still a bit dovish. We have the Fed that paid tribute to some of the good, but still sent a very dovish message. Dovish message. See, I just pulled the rice. <laughs> and I think there's broad-based expectations that in the April NPR, if I had to socialize what I think my main conversations with investors are, it's threefold. Number one is you're going to get a taper. Number two is you're going to get a change up in their forward guidance with the removal of the calendar-based 2023 guidance. And number three, you're just going to have this wholesale adjustment to the forecasts. Are any of those three at risk in your mind, given what we've just learned from the Fed? Yeah, I think the timing of the closing of the output gap, which we you know, had been expecting it to be pulled forward into 2022, the tail end of 2022, but still 2022, there's a risk that they sort of pull a Fed here and just leave it at this point where it's very early on in the recovery. And we actually may be about to embark on a third wave of the virus in Canada. Maybe they just leave the timing of the output gap closing in 2023 so as not to spook markets or not to see any further pulling forward of expectations. Now, Deputy Governor Tony Gravel does have a speech next week. It'll be on market functioning. It's specifically titled The Role of the Bank of Canada in Responding to Market-Wide Stress. Do you think there's any potential that hints at the tapering you're expecting to be announced in the April NPR? So listen, I think the title of the speech is very apropos for that particular deputy governor, given that he has one of the most wide degree of market knowledge. And I think if anyone is going to drop a hint about a taper, that would be the type of environment and platform and speech that you would do it. You know, one of the reasons that we think the bank is tapering isn't just a function of the fact that the economy is growing, therefore it needs less stimulus. A lot of this is technical in nature. You know, you are buying too many bonds, you are distorting liquidity. And we've talked about that many times. So I think that there's a risk next week that we do get some indication that the bank is considering changing up the way that it's conducting its QE purchases. And I think that under such a platform or title, it's easier to come across as this is not a stimulus move. This is more of a, an adjustment to the technical outlook. Let me ask you a question here. Since we're talking about tapering, what are your thoughts about the Fed? Listen, again, this is an environment where I'm not going to put all my faith in what the Fed's characterization of their reaction function is today. I think it can change very quickly. And I think even in the most conservative estimate of not hiking through 2023, you still have a very big sequencing that needs to happen. And the first thing that has to happen is you have to announce a taper. Then you actually have to taper. Then you have to go through multiple instances of reducing the pace of purchases and get to a spot where you're just doing reinvestment. I think the risk here is that, given what we learned on Wednesday, that we don't get a tapering announcement until sometime in 2022. But my gut tells me that I think we're okay still expecting around the summer of this year to expect some type of signal. And he, he did stress that in the meeting yesterday, that you will know when we are giving you a signal. Right. So I don't think they're being coy about it. They're going to be as open as possible. Right. I just don't trust in March 2021 that we're going to completely write off the next nine months of the year that it's an inactive policy agenda. 
Right. And when, if we're talking about in the context of bond yields, how much do you think the Canadian taper matters? And how much do you think the, the U.S. Fed taper matters? Or has a lot of what the reaction would have been to tapering already been pulled forward in the sell-off we've seen in fixed income? So I always get the question, you know, how high can rates rise? And ultimately, rates can go as high as they want. But, you know, you need some framework <laughs> to think about it, right? That's a great uh, insightful comment. <laughs> they can go as high as they want. They can go as high as they need to. All right. Uh, <laughs> anyways, thanks for that, Ivory Tower. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, you need a framework for thinking about it. So when I look at, for example, break-evens in the U.S., 10-year break-evens are, you know, roughly about 2.3%. If you translate that into core PCE terms, you know, you're still talking about 1.9 core PCE. So you're, you're about there. You could probably have a bit of an overshoot. So if the Fed is talking about what was core PCE in the SEP 2.1? In which year? 2022. Core PCE in 2022 is just 2%. Okay. So in 23, it's 2.1, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's say on average 205 over the next two years, then that means that, you know, 10-year break-evens in the U.S., they can rise another 20 basis points before they start to become inconsistent with the core PCE forecast the Fed lined out. And, you know, that, you know, 10, 20 basis points sell-off in or rise in break-evens probably translates into a 25 basis point sell-off in 10 years. So you're realistically talking about kind of 2% as a near-term cap, which would be very consistent with the inflation profile. I think that's the way I've been thinking about it. The other way to think about it, too, is that, you know, in Canada, when I look at a five-year yield, it has to make sense within the context of where we think the bank's going to finish its policy cycle. And what that allows us to do is kind of build out this path-dependent repo understanding of what I'm earning owning this bond and what the break-even is to be short. And basically right now, if you believe the Bank of Canada in 2025 is going to end policy at two and a quarter, five-year yields in Canada are very close to being fully cooked. So you're getting to a situation now where the sell-off is getting close to levels that once it goes above it, you really are starting to divorce yourself from some of the governing forces of the underlying macro. And what that tells me is that any potential impetus that uh, taper in Canada could have. I don't think it's going to be big. I never really did. The U.S. probably matters more. Uh, arguably, it does. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm not convinced just yet that we've seen the peak in yields year to date, but I think we're very close. What are you seeing in markets? What's being priced in for like five year, five years in terms of a nominal neutral rate? Were you spying on me again, Rice? I don't. Like no, no, I was. I was on the call. I think. <laughs> Oh, were you? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, you know, that's a bit creepy as well. But when I was looking at five-year, five-year nominal yields in the U.S., you know, you're kind of at like that, you know, 270 level right now. Mm. That is a level where, you know, over time, where you think about nominal neutral, 10-year yields don't really divorce themselves for very long periods of time relative to where, you know, nominal R star is. Right. So you're getting close to the situation where you're going to entice people back into the market at some point. Right. I think there's some room, actually, and we can go into this another day, but I think there could be some room that actually nominal neutral rates might have risen during the pandemic. It's not what you would tend to think might happen, but your point that it's almost fully cooked in the five-year is very interesting to get up to 225. That's interesting. So let's talk about Canadian housing before we wrap up uh, the episode today. We learned two things over the past kind of 48 hours that are diametrically opposed. Number one is 
Canadian housing was ripping last year. It was up 17% year over year. At the same time, Canada's population growth was the slowest since 1916. Obviously, we know that immigration was slowing down because our borders were closed, but that's also a very vital component of maintaining such a buoyant housing market. How do we think about that? There's been a perverse impact from the pandemic on Canada's housing market. And you see it most clearly in the suburbs and single-family, low-rise housing. People have had more time and more money to spend on their homes. And you've seen that reflected in the numbers. People have been leaving condos and urban cities and migrating further out to the suburbs because they wanted more space for work or because their kids were home and they had more money because they weren't spending on vacations and restaurants and interest rates were very low. And, 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 and. Yeah, you saw that part of the market just explode. Now, on the flip side of that, you saw some, I would say, weakness or softness in in condo markets, but there wasn't a lot of activity. So prices didn't actually move that much. But now What I would argue is that we should be expecting something of a normalization in the coming months. You're already starting to see in the condo market demand start to pick up. I would expect as people start spending less time at home and start spending more money on things other than shelter, the demand for single family homes might cool off and you should see a more balanced market similar to what we saw pre-pandemic. I'm not sure of the timing of that adjustment. But after everything we've seen during the pandemic and all of the research we've done on why those moves happened, it does suggest that it was tied to the pandemic. Now, if we start to make up for the lost immigration, that adds an extra layer of demand for overall housing in Canada and adds an extra layer of support. It's a safety net. So there's no doubt that the Canadian economy and financial system are more vulnerable as a result of the latest increases in housing prices and the amount of money that has flowed into that market. But, you know, I think what we should be expecting is somewhat of a normalization with this safety net of immigration coming back, not the type of maybe worst case scenario risks that we can all imagine. Thank you for that super verbose answer. <laughs> Listen, I think this is a... I mean, do you want to disagree <laughs> with that? Do you have a different opinion? I don't even... I don't want to touch that. Listen... It's I, unclear <laughs> why you asked the question because it has nothing to do with our podcast. Well, listen, you know, I think it's really important to think about... You're in the market for buying a a bigger house, aren't you? I'm in the market for ending this podcast right now. So listen, (laughs) everyone, thank you very much for joining us. And unlike prior episodes, remember, there were bonds harmed in the making of this podcast. (laughs) CIBC World Markets, Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. This communication, including any attachments, is confidential and has been prepared by the Rates Strategy Desk within the Global Markets Group at CIBC Capital Markets. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which different legal entities provide different services under this umbrella brand. Products and or services offered through CIBC Capital Markets include products and or services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce and various of its subsidiaries. 
Services offered by the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce include corporate lending services, foreign exchange, money market instruments, structured notes, interest rate products, and OTC derivatives. CIBC's foreign exchange disclosure statement relating to guidelines contained in the FX Global Code can be found at www.cibccm.com slash FX Disclosure. Other products and services such as exchange-traded equity and equity options, fixed income securities, are offered through directly or indirectly held subsidiaries of CIBC as indicated below. The contents of this communication are based on macro and yield curve analysis, market events, and general institutional desk discussion. The authors of this communication is not a research analyst, and this communication is not the product of any CIBC World Markets Inc. research department, nor should it be construed as a research report. The authors of this communication is not a person or company with actual, implied, or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in the communication. The commentary and any attachments, other than any attached CIBC World Markets Inc. branded research reports and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual authors, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets Inc. The authors may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to the securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC World Markets Inc. or its affiliates may engage in trading strategies or hold positions in the issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments discussed in this communication and may abandon such trading strategies or unwind such positions at any time without notice. The contents of this message are tailored for particular client needs, and accordingly, this message is intended for the specific recipient only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. If you are not the intended recipient, please reply to this email and delete this communication and any copies without forwarding them. Distribution in Hong Kong This communication has been approved and is issued in Hong Kong by Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong Branch, a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, the SFO, to professional investors, as defined in clauses A to H of the definition thereof set out in Schedule 1 of the SFO. Any recipient in Hong Kong who has any questions or requires further information on any matters arising from or relating to this communication should contact Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong Branch at Suite 3602 Cheung Kong Centre, 2 Queens Road Central, Hong Kong. Telephone number 852-2841-6111. Distribution in Singapore. This communication is intended solely for distribution to accredited investors, expert investors, and institutional investors, each an eligible recipients. Eligible recipients should contact Danny Tan at Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore Branch at 16 Collier Quay, number 04-02 Singapore 049318. Telephone number 6564233806. In respect of any matter arising from or in connection with this report, distribution in Japan. This communication is distributed in Japan by CIBC World Markets Japan Inc. Distribution in Australia. Communications concerning derivatives and foreign exchange contracts are distributed in Australia to professional investors within the meaning of the Corporations Act 2001 by CIBC World Markets Inc. Communications concerning securities are distributed in Australia by CIBC Australia Limited. License number 240603, ACN 0006325626 to CIBC Capital Markets Clients. CIBC World Markets Inc. is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and the Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. In the United States, CIBC World Markets Corp is a member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and the Securities Investor Protection Fund. CIBC World Markets Place is authorized by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and Prudential Regulation Authority. CIBC World Markets Securities Ireland Limited is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, Sydney Branch, ABN 33608-235-847 is an authorized foreign bank branch regulated by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA. CIBC Australia Limited, AFSL number 240603 
is regulated by the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, ASIC. CIBC World Markets Japan, Inc. is a member of the Japanese Securities Dealer Association. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Hong Kong branch is a registered institution under the Securities and Futures Ordinance, CAP 571. Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce Singapore branch is an offshore bank licensed and regulated by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Unauthorized use, distribution, duplication, or disclosure without the prior written permission of CIBC World Markets, Inc. is prohibited and may result in prosecution.